Welcome to the Special Ed Files. I'm Jennifer Laviano, a special education attorney. And I'm Julie Swanson, a special education advocate. Case by case, we expose what really goes on in special education. Each episode, we open up a case based on real life experiences. We reveal where things went wrong and explain the legal implication. Finally, we solve the problem so you don't have to. Let's open up a file. All names in this podcast have been changed to protect the individual's identities. Let's open the file on Shanika and the setup. Jen, tell us all about Shanika and what went on in this case. Okay, Julie. So here are the facts. Uh, Shanika, when the parents retained me, was five years old. She had a pretty complex set of disabilities neurologically based and had a lot of needs. And she had been receiving services from pretty much infancy um, and then transitioned at age three into the preschool special education program in her school district. When that happened, the parents uh, really were advocating for her and were able to get the school district to agree to bring in a very highly trained paraprofessional, a one-to-one adult to work with her throughout the day to assist her. And uh, that paraprofessional received a tremendous amount of training and the parents had actually negotiated that on their own because they uh, the mother was an attorney and she researched her rights and knew that she could disagree with the programming being provided. And so they were able to come to an agreement that for the remainder of preschool, Shanika would have this particular paraprofessional with her. And it went really well. She did beautifully, made a lot of progress, and uh, was ready to transition to kindergarten at age five. When that happened, the school district removed the one-to-one that had been assigned the highly trained para and reassigned that person elsewhere and brought in a new paraprofessional who didn't have anything like the same level of training. And very soon into the school year, it became apparent to everybody that uh, Shanika was regressing across many domains. So she had been making progress towards toileting. uh, That, that, completely fell apart. She was losing language. She was exhibiting very upsetting behaviors. Uh, Just across the board, it was really bad. And so the mother started uh, vocalizing to the school district her concerns that this was related to the lack of having the para that she needed who really understood her needs. And um, within, you know, a few weeks of the start of the school year, she started getting home these very formal on letterhead letters from the school system uh, saying that they were concerned about whether Shanika was having some medical issues that weren't being shared with the team. And, um, you know, at one point Shanika had a a number of ear infections, so she had to have tubes in her ears and, you know, formal, which lots of kids do. I mean, it's a very, very common thing for children. And she was getting letters saying, you know, we're not going to allow Shanika back in school until you have a protocol from the doctor as to how to handle the the ear tubes. I mean, just the mother's instincts as a mother and as a lawyer were that she was being set up, that the school didn't want to acknowledge that the problem was that they had changed out this highly trained, more expensive paraprofessional for someone else, and that that was why Shanika was regressing. And instead, we're trying to create a record that there was something medical going on with her. Um, this, w- These were the facts of the case. The mother was smart enough um, and experienced enough to 
document the concerns that there was nothing medical going on. Um, and she was responding and making a, her own record over the course of the whole school year with that this was going on. And, and the regression continued to the point where um, it was interfering with, um, you know, every aspect of the family's life. I mean, she was really falling apart. And the school team, even though this was a case that eventually um, we had a lot of information about what the team knew and when, uh, this was a situation where the school team, for reasons that are still unclear to me, didn't hold an IEP, Individualized Education Program, review meeting for her until April of that school year, even though the behavior and regression started right in in the fall. So um, those were the facts, Julie. And I have a clarifying question. Sure. Do, did the mother, um, did the parent believe that the she was being set up for a total removal of the para or just her argument that it, you know, that she had been sh- uh, sharing concerns that it wasn't a highly trained para? The, the latter. She, she, nobody thought that they would remove paraprofessional support entirely for, for her because she needed it. And I don't even think that the school district would debate that. Um, she needed it for mobility and other reasons as well. So she really did require the one-to-one, but the, the level of training and the cost of the para that had been provided in preschool was like twice that of the one they replaced her with. And uh, so the, the parents were suspicious that uh, the district was going to avoid their obligation to providing an appropriate program to Shanika and try to deflect from what was happening and give come up with another reason. And um, a fact that I think is important and I and left out, so thank you, Julie, for, for the clarifying question, because I think it's important, is that because this was becoming this whole thing about wanting to involve medical professionals and asking about medical issues and um, t- you know all sorts of hypotheses about whether something medical was going on, the parents were providing the school with information from their medical providers, but they were not comfortable giving the school a release to speak with them. They started becoming very, um, I don't want to say paranoid. I don't think it's you know quite that level, but they were so distrustful of this, what, what they thought was really obvious reason for the regression and an attempt to make it about something else, that they didn't give consent for the school team to talk to the medical professionals, which further divided the parents and the school district from one another and made each side even more suspicious of one another. Mm -hmm. So that was um, an error on their part, which we're going to talk about later. So let's get into the law on this, Jen. Okay. So the thing that is important for everyone to understand is that there are clear lines between medical uh, providers, medical services, medical issues, medical needs, um, and educational. They intersect very um, frequently for many types of students, but they are different arenas. And the rules that apply to school districts are not necessarily the same rules that apply to medical providers. And um, because medical information is private and a, and a parent and a, a student have a right to have that information be private, it is not the case that school districts can simply go out and um, gather whatever medical information they want on a child. That's not necessarily what the law provides. They have to have consent to do that. Mm -hmm. And likewise, there are some areas in which um, there are obligations on the school district to follow up on medical issues 
Uh, in fact, under the federal special education law, the IDEA, Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, medical evaluation is a related service under the statute. So school teams do have the right to seek medical input and evaluation on students. Um, but of course, they have to have the parents' consent to do that. So it's it's kind of hard sometimes to understand these two different systems and how they interact. And they they can become very problematic, especially because some medical providers don't understand the terminology that's used in special education and in education and vice versa. So for many families, they're navigating these two, what seem to be very distinct, but sometimes um, are connected systems for their child. Okay. Are there any other aspects of the law we need to consider in this case? Well, I think in this particular case, um, yes. Um, the, the failure of the school team to convene an IEP meeting until April of that school year was a violation of both their procedural and their substantive obligations under the statute. Uh, when, the, as we've talked about before, Julie, on other episodes, the, the law requires that the IEP, the Individualized Education Program, be reviewed at least annually, right? We call that the annual review. So at least once a year, the school team has to get around the table and decide, you know, what the program for the child's going to be, among other things. But it's not only once a year if there are other reasons to convene an IEP team. Mm -hmm. um, there are reasons like parents can make a referral to an IEP team to say, well, I want to talk about my child's program here, okay, so this, I'm concerned. The school has the obligation, however, to convene that meeting if the performance or behavior of the child clearly require revision of the IEP. And so in this particular case, that was a, a violation to not convene a meeting when a student is regressing that severely, even if only to gather more information, right? Right. And so can you just for folks who may be listening, they didn't take away the para. So they didn't take away the service, but they changed the player. And we know that in, you know, this is one of the reasons why IEP team meetings don't have people's names in them, but rather the role or the, uh, the expert um, who is going to be involved in implementing services to the child. What, what could, what is the law around whether, when you change a player? Very good question. There isn't any law around it in that there is no obligation to convene a meeting if if a service that's being provided is continuing to be provided, it, you, the school district is in compliance with that IEP just because it was, you know, Mrs. Jones versus Mrs. Smith or whatever it is. Um, they don't need to convene an IEP meeting to discuss that. What what triggered the obligation to convene the meeting, however, was that the student Shanika was clearly. Uh, regressing in her in her in her behavior in her skills uh, across the board, and that was not disputed. That was not as is sometimes the case where the parents saying my child's regressing, the school saying no, they're not. Uh, the school also was saying seeing the regression and documenting that. So what they needed to do is convene the meeting because even if the school 100% thought there was something medical happening with Shanika. They were obligated to follow up on that, whether that's to ask for a medical evaluation as a related service, whether that's to develop a behavior plan or to some, some type of uh, functional behavioral assessment to try to figure out what the function of the behavior was, whether that was to say to the parent, we're really concerned about um, the fact that uh, you know there's an ear infection and we think that's what's happening. You. Any of those options are, are per certainly permissible and understandable, but doing nothing is not. 
Right. And, you know, I'm excited to talk about the the rewind on this, Jen, because I think, you know, as I'm sitting here listening, I'm think I've got things in my head that I'm saying, you know, there are certain things that could have been done. Um, so let's get right to the rewind. Good Tell idea. You're thinking first. Well, this was a case and I've had a number of them in my years and I know you have too, where there was not just distrust between the parents and the school district and vice versa, but it turned into open hostility. You know, that's not the norm. Even when we get involved, Julie, that's not the norm. This, but the, you know, they happen. They, they, they happen thankfully infrequently, but there are cases where the adults that are charged with the responsibility of uh, focusing on a child lose sight of that and they become focused on each other. And this was one of those cases where, you know, you you could feel in the room when I, when I was brought in and and I went to that April IEP meeting, I won't forget it. And it's been a while now because you could, you could feel the tension in the air between uh, the team members and the mother. And I think it was in part because she was so suspicious from the first form letter she got on letterhead when she'd had a pretty cordial relationship with the team up until that point. And all of a sudden, instead of saying, you know, Hey, what's going on, you know, with, um, with the ear tubes, can we talk, you know, at pickup or drop off, she gets a form letter on letterhead, um, with instructions. She immediately started responding in kind and she was documenting every single thing as well. And school districts are not always accustomed to that. They're very, uh, accustomed to parents who will, in hindsight, say, oh, I just, I wish I would, I had written that down or I wish I had put that in writing. Um, you know, with the advent of email over the years, that's become, you know, m- more and more of um, the way that families do document and people just communicate that way yeah. these days. Um, but she, I, they were mad at her because she figured out really quickly that they were trying to create an issue that did not exist and that just bred distrust and then it bred um, her actions to become also hostile. And so, and then she did make a big mistake and I, it's clients sometimes come to you and you say, I wish you hadn't done that. In my view, it was a big mistake to not provide the consent. Now she had every legal right. The parents had every legal right to not consent to the school team talking to the private medical providers. You have that right. Just because you have the right doesn't mean it's wise. And right. it unfortunately really undercut the argument that it wasn't medical, we were able to ultimately get an evaluation that proved that it was not medical. Right. But um, in the meantime, it made the, it made it look like they were hiding something. Right, and you know, um, I've often had the, the 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 circumstances under which parents feel a little uncomfortable for the um, for the people at the school to be reaching out directly to the um, direct the uh, medical folks. And so, you know, one of the really great ways to sort of come to a compromise with that is you could put right on the consent form any type of um, arrangement, so to speak, that you'd like. So it might be, okay, you want to reach out to the doctor, but you first have to put in writing what you want to talk about and then maybe have a, a write-up of what was discussed, or you could even ask that you're on the, the phone with the person. So you don't have to just have this carte blanche, get in touch with my doctor and talk about whatever you'd like. You could actually have a say in, well, let's define how this communication is going to go. 
Certainly. And, and, you know, I, I still think that it's, I, I'll put it to you this way, Julie. So there's a, there's a funny meme that lawyers like to circulate that says, um, dance like nobody's looking email, like you're going to be in a deposition one day. Okay. (laughs) And, and, and I, I bring that up because parents don't often, you know, consider what is this document? What is my behavior in this situation going to be looking like to maybe a a hearing officer or someone down a mediator or someone who's trying to help us come to a, a, an agreement if we have a dispute and, any effort to say I'm not going to be forthcoming with information is viewed upon skeptically. And I'm not saying that, that there are not many good reasons to do that and to put limitations on it or to put some guardrails around how the information is exchanged. You, there are many families who have highly sensitive information in their child's medical files that includes uh, information about other family members. And so there's good reason to want to be, be have those safeguards. I just always ask parents to say to yourself, how does this look? Especially if, if the school has a theory that's a wildly inaccurate theory about what's going on other than the program. And Jen, before I talk about my idea of what could have been done differently, I must ask first, what was the outcome? Did Shanika get a more highly trained para? What, what what was the outcome? The outcome, uh, unfortunately, was that the parents and the school had such a difficult relationship that the family moved to another school district um, because they they couldn't they couldn't I, despite all of my efforts um, they just couldn't get back on the same page. It was too much water under the bridge, and so um, yeah, they moved. They moved to another town. And in that town, uh, they had a great relationship with the team. The team brought in a highly skilled para, and Shanika finished out her education, you know, doing fairly well. And so that's a shame. You know, you shouldn't have to, I mean, people move for schools, schools all the time, whether you have a disability or not, but you shouldn't have to be removed from a community you, you actually like it and, and chose because of um, a dispute with your school district. But that's what happened. Sure. And in my opinion, you know, one of the ways that this could have been avoided um, in our rewind is if you have, while we can't name people, right, what we certainly can do or ask to have in the record is what of what is the level of expertise this person needs to have? What what is the competency that this person has to have? And I don't mean how intelligent they are. What Mm -hmm. I mean by that is let's define on the IEP, what are all the skills we need for this person to have so that they, this person could be the most appropriate parent and give the most appropriate support for a child like Shaniqua, Shanika, sorry. And I just find that, you know, so many times when there are different people involved because players do change, right? Mm-hmm. Like to go out of my way to say, let's talk about the criteria that this person has to have. And w- let's define the role of this paraprofessional. That's what- such a great point, Julie, to put it right in the IP. You don't, you know, we can't say it has to be this person versus that person, but we can say the attributes of an appropriate paraprofessional. And that goes for teachers too. I mean, I've I've had many, because parents don't get to choose their child's teacher, right. but we will sometimes as an IP team say, uh, teacher selection should be made carefully and with, you sure. know, a teacher who has um, a, a background in whatever the disability is or, or who has a more positive nurturing style or something like that. And, you know, the other thing is, and again, I don't mean to seem cynical, um, but you and I have sat around many a table where we are told, 
our paras are highly trained. And to which I say, as respectfully as I possibly can, I don't know what that means. Right. I mean, they're highly trained. Define that for me. And so I've actually asked districts to say, give me the specific training this person has been through. Because yes, in, in, in you know, giving complete understanding to the district where they are going to train their paras, the, one para... Uh, how you're trained sort of to handle all matters can be very different with somebody who needs to be specifically trained for a unique circumstance of a unique child. And so I like to get all those details in the, on the record. What is the training? It's so important, Julie, because, you know, one of the things we train our parents, because our our ultimate goal is that they don't need us anymore, is that you ask follow-up questions. I, I'll never forget the time where we had put right into the IEP that the paraprofessional had to be highly trained. And we went to the IEP meeting and the director assured us that this person was highly trained and in fact had a master's degree. And I, you know, sometimes it's just, you go on your gut, something tells you to ask a question. Right. And so I said, Oh, oh really? You know, and the, the, the student in question in that case, this is a different case had serious behaviors that required really a high level of training and behavioral and behavior anal- analysis, excuse me, I'm having a hard time getting that out of my mouth today. Mm-hmm. And she said, Oh no, master's level. And I, I just said, what's, what's her master's in? And she said, dance. Yeah. And, you know, my client and I just looked at each other like, you know, come yeah. on, um, that's great. It's wonderful. Um, but that's not remotely applicable to what, what expertise needs to be brought to bear in this particular case. So the devil is in the details. And um, my input for the rewind is get, get, these, get these specifics in the IEP and anticipate that they may need to change a person. Okay, that's understandable. We can't have a para assume that a para is going to want to do something year after year. The para may move. Be prepared for the change. Absolutely. And another thing for the rewind, Julie, um, because we want parents to also change their behavior in some of these situations, is when the mother started to realize that her relationship with the team was becoming toxic, you know, when she's getting letter after letter after letter on letterhead about the silliest things that normally in the preschool would have been a phone call or a, you know, as I said, pick up or drop off conversation are now being documented in formal letters that are coming home. Um, You know, she could have and should have in hindsight asked to meet with somebody at the at a higher level in the administration, the special education director, because by the time it got to that level of administrative supervision in the district, it the you know the toothpaste was out of the tube. There was already a very, very bad relationship and I, it was beyond repair. Mm-hmm. And I in that particular case, I, I'm confident because of what happened when we were um, brought in that the director felt that that she had no choice but to support her team because her team was so furious with this family that she she kind of doubled down. But I know that director well enough to know that had, you know, early on in September, October, the mom said, can I come and sit with you? And this is what's happened. This is what is happening. This is how Shanika is regressing. And I'm getting all sorts of, you know, crazy documented letters from the, the team on a weekly basis and I don't get it. So can we try to, can we rewind? Can we try to put a a reset button on this relationship and maybe bring in a a consultant of mutual agreement to help us get to the bottom of this? Um, Hindsight's 2020, but if that had happened, that would have been helpful. 
so let's wrap it up with the verdict, Jen, on, um, because you know this is just one of those ones that I sit here thinking, my goodness, this didn't have to happen. But what's the ultimate verdict? The ultimate verdict is that sometimes the adults who are involved in these disagreements, including sometimes the parents, have to focus their energies and their um, resources on the child and not each other and not um, being you know, in a situation where you're villainizing one another and that that's where all of your energy is going. Think how much more likely it would have been that Shanika would be not regressing and maybe even making progress if everyone around her had put the energy on her program rather than documenting their disagreements with one another. And on that note, we're going to close the file on Shanika and the setup. Bye-bye. Take care. Until we open up our next file, this is Jen Laviano. And Julie Swanson. The Special Ed Files is a production of the Quinnipiac University Podcast Studio. Our executive producer is Dave DeRoche, Quinnipiac University Director of Community Programming. Our producer is Brian Murphy. File closed.